The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm very pleased to be joined by Lionel Shriver, the novelist and spectator columnist. And we're going to be talking about Biden's first year. Now, Lionel, I haven't watched the entire two-hour press conference, almost two-hour press conference that Joe Biden gave yesterday, but I've seen quite a few of the clips and read quotes, and I think it's fair to say that we can see why Biden's team might be keen on him avoiding these press conferences, as they have often been accused of doing. He sounded a bit lost in parts, particularly on the questions. He suggested that Putin would carry out a minor incursion of the Ukraine and that he didn't really know what his administration would do about that. Well, as I understand it, it wasn't just that he thought that Putin would make a minor incursion, but that he was allowing for the possibility that it might be a merely minor incursion, in which case they would have to decide what to do about it, if anything. And it was just very ill-judged. It's exactly the kind of thing that he does on the hoof which is why his minders don't want him to make anything up on the fly because yeah. I mean, it's the same thing he did with Taiwan, which, you know, threw the entire one China policy out the window. I don't think it's in anyone's interest, aside from Putin's, for Biden to be talking about, well, you know, if you only take a little bit of Ukraine, we're not going to mind. We won't do anything. I mean... <laughs> It's well, just absurd. Well, we should we should clarify that after a lot of Republicans said that he'd effectively okayed a Russian attack on the Ukraine, that the White House clarified that that was not what he was saying. And he may have been referencing a cyber attack and saying that there wouldn't necessarily be a military response to a cyber attack. But the problem is it did actually sound like that was what he'd said. And that speaks... A minor incursion implies yeah. a penetration into territory. Yes. I don't think you can use that word for a cyber attack. I'd agree. I'd be inclined to agree. And I think this speaks to a big problem of Biden's first year as president, which is that he was presented, indeed lauded when he was inaugurated, as a foreign policy. He'd be a great foreign policy president. He would calm the troubled international waters after the tumult of Trump. But he has not been a very effective foreign policy president. I mean, whatever one thinks about the withdrawal of Afghanistan, it may well have been the right thing to do, but it was botched and uh, very badly carried out. Oh, and most particularly in relation to our allies. Yes. Which is what he made a big deal of during the campaign, that he was going to be so consultative and act in concert with them and keep them informed. He withdrew from Afghanistan unilaterally with no consultation and no real warning. It was just his decision, and that was it. It was exactly the kind of thing that he promised not to do. Yes. Very disconcerting. Well, you were you wanted Biden to be elected. You wanted Trump gone. I wanted Trump gone. I was like a lot of 
soft Democratic voters who was negatively motivated. So the way things evolved, Biden was the least bad option. Do you think we might be getting to a position where it might be possible to say that Joe Biden is becoming as much of or possibly more of an embarrassment to Americans than than Donald Trump was? I'm a little torn on that one. (laughs) I'm still inclined to believe that Donald Trump was more embarrassing because, I mean, at least Biden is nominally a Democrat. And Trump was was a, a leader who didn't believe in the system that the U.S. promotes all over the world. I mean, he didn't believe in the legitimacy of the election he lost, which is the worst thing he did during his entire presidency, as far as I'm concerned. They're both embarrassing, is yeah. the answer. They're both embarrassing in different ways. Well, you could uh, say that lots of Democrats didn't believe in the legitimacy of the election Trump won. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean... I'm not sure we want to go there. No, let's not. (laughs) But you're right. I mean, it's the Democrats who set the precedent for questioning the legitimacy of elections. And then in some ways they deserved it, but I'm not sure (laughs) because it's the country that gets punished and the country didn't deserve it. Well, in your typically excellent column this week in The Spectator, you talk about another sort of fairly car crash speech that Biden gave in Georgia and it was the sort of point of the speech was to criticize Republicans who were blocking his attempts to override election reforms. And I think you thought it was a fairly awful speech. Can you explain why? Yeah, it was an awful speech on a host of levels. Okay, to begin with, I just can't stand his delivery. I hate <laughs> Biden's oratorical style. So this business of pounding the podium and being very emphatic and making up for the weak content of what he's actually saying by stressing everything and saying things twice. He seems to think that when if you repeat something, it's more profound. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something uh, weak about it. This overly emphatic style, it is not trusting the words. You know, good orators often underplay the content. They cut across what they're saying with how they're saying it. So they're talking about something important and maybe even very dangerous. But they will use moderate tones. They sound in control and in command. And that makes them much more persuasive. Whereas Biden's underscoring everything comes across as weak, you know? And then we get to the content of the speech. And uh, first off, I think the Democrats, this, if you will forgive the expression, this whole hysteria about voting rights is trumped up. Mm-hmm. So the laws that Republican-dominated legislatures have been passing after the general election, it's penny-ante stuff. You know, it's It's cutting back on the extensive period during which you can order an absentee ballot or, you know, making the period of early voting somewhat shorter. What I wanted to point out in the column is that all of these, the mail-in ballots and everything, all of this stuff is new. I mean, through most of my life, you had to go to the polling booth 
and cast your vote in person. And by the way, it would be on the day. There was no early voting. There was no mail-in voting. And you could only get an absentee ballot with a good excuse, like being outside the country. Now, I've voted a lot by absentee ballot. But that's because, you know, I'm in the UK. Yeah. Now everything's changed. A lot of states, anyone can get an absentee ballot. There's some states that want to send everyone an absentee ballot. Got this, you know, broadly available mail-in stuff. And, of course, the rules were loosened fantastically during COVID. So a lot of these laws are just pulling back some of the special measures that were put in place to make it easier for people to vote and not be exposed to the virus. Yes. And many of these states are not even pulling back to the pre-pandemic rules. So I, I find this unpersuasive. And yet, you know, there's Biden pounding away on the podium, talking about how, you know, the Republicans are bringing in the new Jim Crow. Yeah. You know, what, as he calls, Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah. This is patently absurd. I mean, I'm sure your audience is aware that this has to do with the post-Civil War, pre-Civil Rights period, most infamously in the South, where by hook or by crook, blacks were pretty much denied the vote. It was very difficult to vote. Mm. And that it, it was purposeful. It was genuine disenfranchisement. To compare that to, oh, well, early voting has been reduced by a week is absurd. I feel that it's insulting on multiple levels. It certainly insults Republicans and Republican legislatures in terms of what they're trying to do. But it also insults the leaders of the civil rights movement. I mean, well, 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 did they accomplish nothing? Yeah. And, and also, to compare what's happening now to Jim Crow is also to diminish Jim Crow. Mm. It's like you don't understand what that was if you think this is Jim Crow. Well, I mean, one thing Biden seemed particularly exercised, as you mentioned in the column, is this idea that I think as part of the Georgia Republican-led voting reforms, that people would not be fed in the actual election queues. They can be fed sort of within 150 metres or whatever it is, but they can't be fed, offered food in the election queue. They can be offered water, but not food. And this is taken, or Biden seemed to take this as a vile act of voter suppression, as though people were starving voters to stop them voting somehow. And I mean, I know Americans like to eat, and rightly so, but it seems to me this was pretty absurd. Well, in relation to Georgia's law, it's okay to have water available mm -hmm. that isn't being handed out by partisan actors, that is unmanned, and, you know, that's not hard to arrange, you know, but I think they're not supposed to be handing out liquids either. Right. The point is, though, that they're within, I think the standard distance is 100 yards of uh polling booth. There's not supposed to be any electioneering, and that would include handing things out to voters. Yeah. Biden tried to portray this as, as un-American. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess it is un-American to not eat and drink all the time. <laughs> so, in that way, he's right. Well, I mean, I think going back to the, the racialized element of that speech, I mean, it does seem like Biden is, as you say, he's He's not speaking as the 1960s because he doesn't quite have the, the flighted rhetoric. But he's appealing to a sense of American progress that is it's frozen in time. Yeah, well, Democrats love the civil rights era. You know, that 
that was when they were really on the side of righteousness. And, you know, in retrospect, and by the way, even at the time, mm. it, was, yeah. it there was only one side to be on. And that's an enviable issue, isn't it? That you can't be wrong, that you were perfectly moral. This was a a defining cause of modern America, and it was roundly successful. And regardless of the kind of rhetoric that's flying around now about systemic racism, you know, the, the present and the pre-65 past are night and day, and gloriously. I'm delighted. Yeah. And so I, I can see why Democrats like to hearken back to that, and they miss that kind of moral certainty. I don't think there are very many issues on the table today that display anything like it. But especially young Democrats, you know, they want, they want that for themselves. They want that sense of righteousness. Yes. And you can certainly find the righteousness or, or the self-righteousness, but you can't find the, the moral certainty from a step back. Well, it was interesting. I thought that certain senior Democratic commentators and even uh, Nancy Pelosi felt that he'd overreached in that speech and said, I think Nancy Pelosi said the Jim Crow bit was badly judged or overstated. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a growing sense in the party that Biden is an embarrassment? Yeah, I think that the Democrats are absolutely panicking. In the short to medium term, they're obviously anxious about the midterm elections in 2022, but they're hysterical about 2024. And you know how these things work in the States. Everything is arranged ahead of time. Now, that things don't always go according to plan, but there is going to be a plan. I guarantee you that the honchos in the Democratic Party spend a lot of time among themselves talking about what to do about Biden, how to urge him not to run again, and yet who are they going to run instead, how to get rid of Kamala Harris. I keep reading this idea that, oh, well, maybe the best thing to do with Kamala Harris is put her on the Supreme Court. What a terrible idea. (laughs) Oh, we've got this complete idiot for vice president, so let's put her on the Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs) Let's make sure that she can block things that a Biden presidency might do. I think, I mean, actually, in terms of rhetoric, I'd be interested because I thought it was very well put what you said about Biden's rhetoric. Who do you think is a worse rhetorician, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris? Oh, gosh. It's a tough contest. (laughs) I'm frozen. (laughs) Um, If I were forced to listen to one or the other, I would rather listen to Biden. Yeah. I find that Kamala Harris grates on me uniquely. And I hate her voice. I hate her style. I've noticed that they must have tried to keep her from laughing all the time. (laughs) In her recent appearances, I've noticed she's been quite sober because the cackling hasn't gone down well. But, you know, worse than, than Kamala Harris's presentation of herself is the fact that she cannot think on her feet. And in that way, she and Biden share a similar problem. Yes. Because... She goes completely deer in the headlights. If you ever ask her a question, that's slightly challenging, you know, that that you have to answer with substance. And she can't handle it. But if the Democrats do enact what people in Washington are calling Plan B and find a way to get rid of Biden, 
it is actually hard to see how, I mean, beyond this slightly ridiculous idea of putting on the Supreme Court, it's hard to see how you stop Kamala Harris becoming the, the choice. At this stage of the game, I would be awfully surprised if they went ahead with her. Yeah. I would. She has such appalling poll numbers. I mean, they would have to delay I, them. I, till... I, I did a previous column rounding on this point, but the notion of facing an election in which I had to choose between Kamala Harris and Donald Trump makes me quasi-suicidal. <laughs> I, I don't know what I would do. Yes. I have complete contempt for people who choose not to vote by way of making their views known. I appreciate that you have to deal with the real choices and someone is going to be elected, so pick one. But I would be tempted not to vote. I would be utterly paralyzed. Well, on the last podcast, we discussed Hillary Clinton, sort of rumours about Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah, the Wall Street Journal was pushing that. Yes. Not the editorial board, but... uh, No, Doug Schoen, Doug Schoen, yeah. I mean, if that happened, would you would you find that more horrifying than or less horrifying than a, a Harris Trump? Oh, less horrifying. less horrifying. I mean, I'm no big fan of Hillary Clinton, but she's not a moron. Yes. Okay. So the country would not be in terrible peril. She wouldn't enact the policies that I would choose, but they wouldn't be insane policies. And so, yeah. I mean, if, if, if we say sort of Clinton-Trump was a bad choice for Americans, Biden-Trump was a very bad choice for Americans, and then if you, you're looking ahead to Harris-Trump, it looking like a sort of awful choice, as you suggest, what is it about America? Is America in some sort of self-destructive tendency where it's managing to push these terrible scenarios on its public? I find it mystifying. There are 335 million people in the country, and look at the people that we're we're running for the highest office. It's clear that politics is not attracting high-quality individuals who can, you know, make a lot more money and also not, you know, be figures of fun. <laughs> you know, politics comes with a lot of ignominy if you make a mistake. Mm. It's full of frustration. So I guess we're not we're not attracting the quality candidates. But otherwise... I'm a little befuddled. One of the dysfunctions of democracy is clearly the party machine. And it's the parties who are ultimately selecting the people that you get to choose between. Mm. So the most important decisions are made before you get to the ballot box. And something's going wrong with the machines. I mean, they're just, they're coming up with stale candidates. I mean, if, One of the weird aspects of the 2016 election was that it was kind of satisfying, even if it was catastrophic, still kind of satisfying that the Republican establishment did not get the candidate they wanted. Mm. And it's like we're out of control. So, you know, blasting the parting machine is not not necessarily the answer. I mean, how did we how did we end up with a president who's now 79 it's absurd. And he is losing it. And that's becoming a big political issue, even for his supporters. The age factor is interesting. Why? I mean, Kamala Harris is, is not that old. But otherwise, you know, the leading candidates for the presidency in the last few cycles have been the oldest and the, and the sort of least mentally competent. Why is that? Is that because Americans harbour some sort of trust in the generations that went before? That, that means Definitely that- not. 
No. What is it? It's a, it's a culture that, by and large, is prejudiced against very old people. Yeah. And that's one of the things that makes this so mystifying. Well, perhaps America has changed and, and it's lost its sense of confidence in itself as a, as a renewing culture. Well, we certainly do have a culture right now of total self-destruction. Yes. And I imagine that when you've got a dominant ideology that claims that the country is evil and corrupt, that doesn't inspire you to run for office, does it? No. If you're up and coming, you're young, you're ambitious, why would you run for office in such a disgusting country? Well, Speaking of self-destruction, let's move on to inflation, because I know you've got a great interest in this. You've written about it in your fiction, as well as in, in your journalism. It's getting pretty bad in America, 7% worse it's been in almost four decades. And it doesn't seem like the Fed are talking about a, an interest rate rise, but it doesn't seem like Biden is very alert to this problem that's actually really, really starting to hurt American voters and starting to make them quite angry. Well, you know the Democratic line on this is that it's all just supply chain problems mm. and demand exceeding supply because of all the sudden surge in economic activity post-pandemic, if we can speak of post-pandemic now. Yeah. And it's all going to settle down. Never mind. It's transitory. There's some truth to that. Those are contributing elements. And then there's the energy situation, which is larger than just the United States, but it has to be an element. All this money that was dumped in U.S. consumers' hands, I mean, the, there were the, this huge giveaway of cash, mm. and how can that not be inflationary? And furthermore, all the quantitative easing and the huge deficits we're running, and therefore the, you know, the effective printing of vast amounts of money, the what are the figures in the last two years that, or during a year and a half in the, during the pandemic, the Fed increased the money supply by something like 36%, yeah. and they have plans to do it again. Yeah. Now, great, it was so fun the first time. <laughs> that, that has to have inflationary effects. And what's frightening about it is that it takes a while for those effects to be felt. It takes years for the fact that everyone has too much money, which is a weird problem to have. Mm. But that is the problem in the United States. Everyone has too much money. Look mm. at the stock market. That's because people have too much money. Mm. It has mm. to go somewhere. It's a giant savings account in the sky. So what I was going to say, that's, what's forbidding about it is it takes years to filter through the system, but then it also takes years to make it go away. Yes. And it takes some pretty brutal monetary policy to make it go away. In this regard, I'm sympathetic with Biden. I mean, I, I do think he's making everything worse by proposing all of these, you know, multi-trillion dollar spending splurges. But it's not as if you can tap him on the shoulder and said, sir, you forgot about the inflation. Could you press the button? On top of inflation, it seems like Biden's had a, a pretty bad year on a number of fronts. And all the problems that have made his year so bad are worsening. And it looks as though it's hard to see how he will not have an even worse second year because you have inflation, you have crime rates are skyrocketing. COVID is, is not in control in America. 
and there is a ongoing crisis at the border. All the things that make voters angry uh, <laughs> seem to be getting worse. Yeah, and on all those fronts, Biden isn't doing anything yeah. but making everything worse. These are the things that Americans really care about. It's not so different from Brits. I know a lot of the British are concerned about what's happening in the English Channel. Mm. But ain't, that ain't nothing compared to what is happening on the southern border of the United States. And it's bad optics. <laughs> people don't like watching hordes of people cross the border in real time with border agents actually opening the gate and letting them through and putting them on buses, and now they're putting them on airplanes and flying them all over the country. You know, Americans are broadly supportive of immigration. I'm sure your audience knows that. But they like orderly immigration. They like people who obey the rules. This is just free-for-all. Everyone from everywhere teaming across the border and then being taken to your hometown and they're just plunked on you and you're supposed to take care of them. They don't have any resources. Very few people like it aside from the hard left of the Democratic Party. I don't know how much this is some grand scheme to bring in more minorities on the assumption that they're going to be Democratic voters. I know Tucker Carlson is big on that theory. Mm. I think it's just... It is the natural consequence of an ideological position that the Democrats have not entirely owned, but at the same time, it is their de facto position. They don't believe in enforcing immigration law. And mm. when you don't believe in enforcing immigration law, you have open borders. That's just what you end up with. The Democrats do not want to be seen putting innocent people in detention they don't want to put children in cages, you remember, from the Trump era. Mm. So they just are turning turning away. They're not doing anything. It's a completely passive immigration policy. Could there be, I mean, I don't want to, perhaps I'm crediting the Biden administration with too much joined up thinking, but is there an extent to which massive illegal immigration is a deflationary force because it lowers wages and makes things cheaper? It's, it's a rather... Well, that's a pretty expensive solution to the inflation situation. <laughs> but if we're just going to talk about it in political terms yes. rather than economic ones, because then we, on the economic level we could have a long discussion because that's controversial whether low-skilled immigrants really improve your economy because the, the public ends up picking up a lot of their real costs, yes. most especially in the United States. We're talking about health care. But politically this is just a catastrophe and what's interesting is that it's also catastrophic for Hispanic voters. The assumption that Democrats have been making, whether or not Tucker is right in his paranoia that this is importing new voters, but that the assumption that minorities are just going to knee-jerk vote Democratic is proving quite incorrect. Mm. Biden's polling among Hispanics is appalling. Yeah. And one of the reasons is immigration. The people who are most resistant to uncontrolled immigration is recent immigrants mm. because even newer immigrants are going to undercut them and our competition for the same jobs. It's not in their interests. And they're too much in the same economic stratum, which means that there's competition over housing and they got in. A lot of recent immigrants would be happy as Larry to close the door behind them. Yes. I think to wrap up then, Lionel, I think 
let's try and imagine fast forwarding a year and we're having the same conversation. Do you anticipate that, as is widely anticipated, the Democrats will take a real beating in the midterms in November? And I'd like to ask you if you think Biden will, first of all, will he still be president in a year? (laughs) And if he is, will the outlook be much, much worse? Well, on the will Biden be president in a year, I think that depends on his health, particularly his mental health. It seems to me that he's in a state of pretty precipitous mental decay. And it can't afford to get much worse before there will be murmurings of the 25th Amendment. We're not there yet. His gaffes are not quite considerable enough to be in that that area. And certainly the Democrats are going to try to eke him through to 2024. So, you know, my best guess is, yes, a year from now, Biden will still be president. I also anticipate that he will still be in big trouble. I don't think he's going to get his Build Back Better bill through. He might be able to chop it up into little pieces and get some more popular measures through. But I don't see the border situation improving. Inflation is likely to continue to rage through 2022. Nobody's doing anything about the crime rate. So even if that doesn't get worse, it's, it's likely to stay as bad as it is right now. And then who knows what's going to happen with Ukraine? I don't know. Biden was elected as, as a so-called caretaker president. The trouble with that whole concept is that means nothing can happen, right? Yeah. It's like you're just supposed to sit there. You, you're going to keep the chair warm. But my biggest concern about him is being president when something big happens that requires action and authority and follow through and surety. I don't trust Biden to handle a Russian invasion of Ukraine with anything but following through on the pale sanctions that he's threatened already. There's not even any unity between uh, the rest of NATO and, and the Biden administration as to whether or not they can agree to cancel, what are they called, the SWIFT? The SWIFT payment system. Yeah, and shut the Russians out of that. That's that's the most severe sanction they can come up with. But they, they're not in accord on that point. So I'm just, I'm worried that countries like China and, and Russia now feel emboldened. I think that under a different president, that Putin would not have amassed 127,000 troops from the last estimate on the Ukrainian border. I think it is a sign of what Putin thinks of Biden that he feels free to do that. Yeah, I mean, think about it. You know what Putin is like. You know the kind of man that he would naturally respect. I've never been persuaded that Putin respected Trump. Mm. I think that Putin thought he could manipulate Trump. Yes. But he, he has no more respect for Biden. In fact, I suspect less. Here's this trembling old man. You know, I think he comes across to someone like Putin as feeble in every sense of the word. Despite the fact, or the not fact, (laughs) the almost certainly made up story that Joe Biden tells that he looked at Putin when he met him and said, Mr. Prime Minister, Putin was then Prime Minister, Mr. Prime Minister, I don't think you have a soul. I think that sort of speaks quite a lot to Biden's character, actually, because I I think he's a bit of a fantasist and he invents stories and then 
believes them, like this story that he was The Nelson arrested. Mandela story. Yes, which has no evidence to suggest it's true. No, in fact, both the Washington Post and the New York Times during the this, before he became the nominee. Yes. Uh, so it was in their interest. They were supporting Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. So they, they investigated this assertion that Biden made that he had been arrested in South Africa in Soweto when he was trying to see Nelson Mandela at what he called Robin's Island repeatedly. It's Robin Island. And then he, he said later that when Mandela got out of prison, he rang up and, oh, that's right, it was, he embraced him and said, oh, I, I heard that you were trying to visit me and you got arrested. This is total fantasy. <laughs> there is no evidence for this. Andrew Young, with whom it was the UN representative at that time, with whom he made this, I guess at least the trip was real, says he has no memory of any of this. No one got arrested. If Biden got arrested in Soweto, that's 900 miles from Robbins Island. (laughs) And then he came up with even more fantastical stuff that, oh, well, it wasn't that he was arrested, but that when he landed in South Africa, he was told that he had to go through the white door and the black people in the delegation had to go through the black door and he refused to cooperate with that kind of horrific apartheid. Well, I'm sorry. He landed in Lesotho, which is governed by black people and didn't have any apartheid. And there were four other white people in his delegation who would also have had to go through this, you know, Wizard of Oz white door. I mean, it's he doesn't know the difference between what he makes up and the truth anymore. Yes. You know, that's classic dementia, isn't it? Well, and he also seems to have convinced himself he's overperforming, as he put it yesterday, as president. And I think we can conclude from the various points you make that he is not. Lionel, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Please come on again. Yeah. Well, I wish I could be a little more positive, but it's (laughs) not my forte anyway. (laughs) We like the gloom. We lean into it. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. (laughs) 